One of the things we need to deal with whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit is we need to talk about the Spirit's role in the Old Testament. And the reason that's so important is there are a lot of myths, I think, that grow up and um, take root in our own thinking when we think back to the Old Testament and consider our privileges as New Testament Christians. So to be able to do this, we need to perhaps work backwards. What I want to start with is the pivotal point in biblical history. And while the consummation of all that God wants to do in our lives or in this world or in his kingdom uh, or even in relationship with us in the spirit is yet to come and things are only going to get better, uh, we need to recognize there's a definitive change in the Bible that cannot be ignored and we need to think it through from a biblical perspective. So I want to talk first of all, letter A, about the Old Testament promise that looked forward to the pivotal point in biblical history as it relates to the Holy Spirit. And once you write that down, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Now in the New Covenant, as the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the New Covenant, they always had that sense that when it happens, it is the beginning of the consummation. It's not the consummation, as certainly history is borne out to prove, but it is the beginning And the hallmark of that is the relationship that God has with his people via the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Drop all the way down, if you would, to verse 30. I'm sorry, let's start in verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Now, again, there are so many aspects to the fulfillment of God's promises, in particular to the assembling of Israel after their dispersion. And so often we can think, well, this looks like the historical regathering of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. First of all, we should get some larger perspective. There are two prophets that prophesied during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC. Most of the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament are looking forward to it, the writing prophets, starting with Isaiah all the way through Malachi. Not all of them, but most of them. During the exile, we have Ezekiel and Daniel that are prophesying, and they're looking about the uh, looking toward the future about what God is going to do in terms of hope. So much of the, the, the focus of Ezekiel is not only the demise of the nation as he looks back, but also the great hope. And so now here's the promise in verse 24 that talks about the reassembling of Israel from the nations, but it's clearly looking to something future, which if you don't catch that from this text, we'll know it when we get to Christ as he makes a clarification to the promise regarding the Spirit. Verse 24, he says, I'll take you from the nations, speaking of his people. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, that did happen in a first installment in the reassembling under Ezra and Nehemiah, but it certainly wasn't the fulfillment of this, not the complete fulfillment. Verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. Here's this picture that Jesus spoke about in John 3 to Nicodemus about the need for his... Uh, the need for his rebirth to take place with this symbolic picture of water. And I shall clean you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And while there certainly was repentance in the post-exilic period when they came back after 70 years in Babylon, they certainly weren't cleansed in the sense that he's now going to describe in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, small s, I'll put within you. I think that's probably the right translation there. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. That's the picture that Paul speaks of in the New Testament of old man, new man, who I was, my old self, and how I am now remade, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But here's the difference. The pivotal point in pneumatology is this statement, verse 27. I'll put my spirit, now God's speaking in the first person, 
capital S. I'll put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when the spirit indwells people, the rules and the statutes are not the ceremonial statutes, are they? No, and they're not even the civil statutes. They're the moral statutes of the law, which is that we see the New Testament fulfilling this. And you'll dwell in the land that I gave your forefathers, and you shall be my people, and I'll be your God. Now, this is why I'm premillennial, one of the reasons, if you, if you think this through. If the Spirit is going to indwell people, and the assembling of the people after the exile takes place, but the relationship with the Spirit, that pivotal point in biblical history hasn't taken place, then when is it that they're going to dwell in the land with their fathers that he gave to the fathers, that's Israel, and be his people, and he's going to be their God with this new Spirit relationship? That hasn't happened yet. And the literal, plain, normal reading of the text leads many of us, at least in my ilk, my circle, to believe that the millennial kingdom is yet to come. This kingdom fulfillment of the Israelites living in the land, and that's yet to come. The promise of the Old Testament. 27, the key verse. Now I want you to jump ahead in your Bibles to the promise that Jesus now makes that is the clarification of what the new covenant promise of the Spirit is. I've got chapters 14 through 16. Obviously, we're not going to read the whole uh, three chapters here. But in the upper room discourse that starts in chapter 13, just before he goes to the, to the cross to be betrayed and then goes to the cross, he's making all these references to the coming of the Spirit. Look at how he puts it, starting in chapter 14. Let's start in verse 16, John 14, 16. He's speaking to his disciples. They've been with him for three and a half years. He says, I'm going to ask the Father and he'll give you another, the helper, the parakletos. More on that next week. To be with you forever. Now here's this picture of a changed relationship with the third person of the Godhead. Even the spirit of truth. There's another Old Testament reference. We won't take time to make the connection, but we will. Whom the world can't receive. Now it's not everyone because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. In other words, you have a connection with the spirit, but he will be in you. That reference is the difference that Ezekiel 36, 27 was giving us, that there's a changed relationship when the spirit makes not only my heart new, but his spirit is implanted in me. He dwells with you, you know him, you know his influence, you know his conviction, but he's going to be in you. Those prepositions create some kind of pivotal distinction between how the Spirit relates to the people of God. Look across the page, chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when he, now he refers to him the same way he did in chapter 14, the helper, the parakletos, when this one comes, though it's called in alongside, when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, more on that next week, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So he's going to come. He's going to be sent from the Father. It's as though he hasn't been sent. Matter of fact, the phraseology elsewhere gives us that impression. But in reality, he's with us. The Spirit of God is active. There's some kind of connection, some kind of conviction, some kind of leading. But the difference is the one that was spoken of in the new covenant promise of Ezekiel. Look forward to chapter 16. Chapter 16, let's start in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, Jesus tells his disciples, that I go away. They didn't want him to go away. You wouldn't either. Because if I don't go away, then here it is again, the parakletos, the helper, the spirit will not come to you. But if I go to you, I will send him to you. Now think about this. The Old Testament, as we're going to see, talks a lot about the spirit and the spirit's interaction with people. But it's as though he's not even there. Well, he is there. But just like he said in chapter 15, he needs to be sent in some special way, in some new way. 
verse 8. When he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he explains those things. Drop down to verse 13 now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare to you the things that are to come. Whatever that is, it's different. When it takes place, and there's little confusion about this in the New Testament, the fruition of it comes in Acts chapter 2. Often we think about the pivot of biblical history being between Malachi and Matthew. And in some sense, nothing wrong with that. The appearance and birth of the Messiah, big deal, big change, Old Testament, New Testament, Christ stands in the middle. But if you want to look at the distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant with the hallmark of the Spirit being in you and not with you, the real pivot for pneumatology doesn't take place until Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, look at this, verse 1. It's the day of Pentecost that it arrived. They're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's an interesting word we'll tie together later in our study tonight. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. So some visual manifestation rested on each one of them and they were filled. Now there's an important word with the Holy Spirit. There's everything Ezekiel spoke of, everything that Jesus spoke of in the Upper Room Discourse. And the evidence of that was they began to speak in other languages, glossa, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now drop down to verse 14. He's now going to quote Joel 2 and talk about the fact that this had taken place. This was the Old Testament promise coming true now in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is gone, which he said the Spirit can't be sent, can't come, not in the way he was promised until I leave. It's been several days and he's gone. Peter, standing with the 11, verse 14, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, saying, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 17. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not every last person, Ezekiel made that clear, but all kinds. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's an important connection we'll make later between prophecy and the indwelling spirit. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. No socioeconomic barriers here. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Much like the millennial promise and the spirit promise, there's a long time between the giving of the spirit within a person and the fulfillment of them being in their land as a people dwelling there. And so it is with this, the cataclysmic events of the things in the heavens, the skies in in space being turned to blood, fire, vapor, and smoke, which is all spelled out in the book of Revelation is yet future. Not only that, in 2 Peter, he says that's yet to come when all these cataclysmic things take place in the cosmos. The sun's going to be turned to darkness, the moon and the blood before the day the Lord comes. Okay, now the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Spirit. Spirit comes first, cataclysmic events, coming of the Lord. Why does he keep quoting all this if it's not relevant to this day? Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, unquote. The reason he keeps quoting this passage is he's trying to get to that phrase because he's about to preach a message on them calling on the name of the Lord and being saved, specifically on Christ, the mechanism of their atonement. And so he quotes the whole thing, which gives us a broader picture than we need for this historic event. But much like Ezekiel, 
There's a lot of time that's built into the promise, but it all begins with the coming of the Spirit. And as I said, the pivotal point in biblical history, it's not all consummated with the coming of the Spirit, but the consummation all begins with the sending of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit in individual people. And whatever that means, as we'll look at as we continue this, to contrast the Old Testament people, we'll see it's a very different, qualitatively different relationship with the Holy Spirit, as imperfect as it is in fallen bodies, not yet resurrected, not yet like Christ. The promise in the Old Testament, the promise reiterated by Christ, the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 and everything after Acts chapter 2, the new relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's not the end all. As Paul said, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, you should pity us. There's a lot more to this, and it's coming, as all these prophecies had spoken of. Now, what we want to do tonight is look in the Old Testament and say, okay, we're going to work backwards. This is the pivot point, Acts chapter 2. Let's look back from Acts chapter 2 and think about the Spirit and his relationship to people, because we need to understand that so we can rightly understand the Old Testament. But before we start delving into the Old Testament, I want to caution you with a few mistakes that I think we generally make or can make or we're prone to make when we consider the Old Testament. Number one, to use Lewis's phrase, don't be a chronological snob. And we, are, we tend to do that. We think we're smarter. We think we're better off. We think everything's great. Now, listen, I've already said there's a qualitative difference between Old Testament relation to the Spirit and New Testament relation to the Spirit. But you've got to really understand that what people have done, unfortunately, is so diminished the, the godliness of Old Testament saints and their relationship to God and the Holy Spirit in their lives that we've made a contrast that in this case, I agree with A.W. Pink, who made it very clear that we've disparaged them in a way I think we'll be embarrassed for one day. Uh, Pink put it this way. He said, it is only another of the evil effects produced, he says, uh, by the misguided efforts of those who have been so eager to draw as many contrasts as possible between the present dispensation and those which preceded it. To the disparaging of earlier members of God's family. I love the way he worded that sentence. The Old Testament saints had far more in common with the New Testament saints than is generally supposed. And I would underscore that, agree with it wholeheartedly. And when we think of it, uh, the Old Testament saint and the Old Testament follower of Yahweh and his relationship to God, sometimes we can be pretty snooty and snobbish about that in a way that is completely unfounded on the biblical data. So don't be a chronological snob. Not to mention they were a lot closer to the original copy of Adam and Eve. And uh, I bet their attention span was a whole lot better. You walk a, a couple miles because you parked a long way or you do the, 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 the um, I don't know, the swap meet or something. Oh, I walked so many miles today. They were in better shape. They had better attention spans. They were, many of them, brilliant, far more godly than us. I don't want to have an inferiority complex as it relates to the Old Testament saints, but I certainly don't want to pitch them under the bus as Pink puts it, disparaging the earlier members of God's family. So don't be a chronological snob. And don't think that the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament, which we're going to try to prove in the remainder of this time, is, of course, he was active and present. Matter of fact, last week, we started in Genesis 1, verse 2, and we reminded that the Spirit was active at the very beginning of creation, fluttering over creation, whatever that means, being an active participant in everything that was created. And I tried to get you to stop thinking of creation in terms of a painter with a canvas and a brush, you know. You look at a bush and you think of, you know, oh, he's painted flowers. You know, he created the molecular structure, you know, the, the, the atoms and the leptons. And, you know, he, he built this thing as a physicist. 
physicist, if you will, and put together the fabric of the universe, uh, not to mention what we see, but even what we can't see. So anyway, we're going to talk about the Spirit's involvement far past creation. There's, there's well over 100 references, specific references, to the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament, so clearly he was active. A lot more on that in a minute. And the other thing I thought we've got to address, because we were close enough to it to underscore it, I want you to open to the Psalms, and I just want to make three quick points as it relates to them being saved in the same way you are. I think there's one thing that's very clear. When you graduate from Sunday school, and I mean the earliest forms of Sunday school, we clearly think they were saved differently than we're saved, and I don't want that myth to be perpetuated in your mind. So if you'd start at Psalm 32. And I chose to go to the Psalms here because I wanted to remind you this was their songbook. These were the hymns, if you will, that they sang. These are the things that they continually repeated in worship, both private and public, for years, centuries. And it's the kind of thing that embedded in their mind. I mean, these were their theological expressions and their theological experiences. So I just want to make a few points about this. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And if you're really a theological, astute person, it's verses like this that makes me look at Sanders and N.T. Wright and all the things about the new perspective of Paul and makes me think, is it really hard for me to swallow the pill about this intertestamental, you know, second temple period Judaism that completely departs from what we understand in the Reformation about theology? When I read verses like this and I think, and this is what I'm trying to say, they have the same problem, the same issue with God that we have, the same sin problem. They need forgiveness. They've created transgression because of their sin, and they need it forgiven. They need their sin atoned for and covered. It's not nationalistic badges and all that other nonsense. That's for a different lecture. But verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's That's the real concern. Go to worship feeling guilty. You do something you know you're not worthy before God. These are the same issues you deal with, aren't they? We need someone to be honest about sin in spirit, in whose spirit there's no deceit. Paul kept, Paul, I'm sorry, David kept silent about his sin and his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long, night and day. Hand was heavy upon me. Strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess the transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I just want to make it really, really clear. At the core of human beings, in, in, in the mind and hearts and souls, if you will, of these individuals of the Old Testament, they struggle with the same thing you did, being guilty. Guilty before what? Psalm 30, 130, Psalm 130. Guilty before a perfectly holy God who will not in any way, as Habakkuk 1 says, tolerate sin, can't tolerate sin. So much in the book of Job, which seems like we just read yesterday in our daily Bible reading, so many times there's that statement about the absolute holiness of God that that makes these people recognize that though Job may be relatively more righteous than many people when it comes to the absolute nature of God's holiness, who can, who can be accepted before a holy God? Most religions, by the way, even perversions of Christianity, don't view God as a holy, perfectly holy God. Psalmist got it. These were the songs that they sang, the hymns that they sang. Verse 3, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you track them and, 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 and put them in some ledger, who could stand? We're all guilty. But with you there's forgiveness, that you may be feared. You're perfect, and yet you're gracious. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love, and with him there's plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The idea here is that they're dealing with a holy God that they know no matter what private secret sin they have. There is no way before that holy God that they can be right. 
And for all the theology I read about Old Testament ideas of how God is perceived, I, I read the songbook of Israel. That's one of the clearest windows into their heart. Got the same problem we got. They feel their unworthiness before the same perfectly holy God that we, we deal with. And lastly, Psalm 78. I just want to make this point. Let her see here. God required the same response, the same response. The exact same response that's called of from you is the same response called of from every Old Testament person who would just get honest about their sin and whose spirit there would be no deceit, the confession. Look at Psalm 78, start in verse 32 through 35. Speaking of the people who had been cared for by God so graciously, he says in verse 32, in spite of all that gracious care of God, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, even the miraculous signs, they did not believe, they didn't trust him. So he made their days vanish like a breath, made them wander in the desert for years in terror. And when he killed them, they sought him. When they saw the problem, they they, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. And they remembered that God was their rock. He's the only defender, the only refuge, the most high God, their redeemer. Now, for all the pot shots the emergent church gives on the basic arrangement of the New Testament gospel that they think was created in the Reformation period, you see it right here. There is a God that is so holy that we sin against because of our unbelief and our lack of trust. And because of his response, we're called to repent. And when we repent, he becomes our salvation. From what? From God himself. God saves us from God because of our unworthiness. If we, the two words in verse 32 and 34 are belief, faith we call it in the New Testament, and repentance. Same thing. What would I train my child to do if I lived in 600 BC as it relates to God? I'd say, he's holy, you're not. You got a problem before God. You're going to feel the conviction of God. Then what do you need to do? You need to trust him. His goodness, man, you should see that you, you have, in the face of his goodness, you've still sinned. You should trust God and you should repent of your sins. Doesn't sound a lot different than what I'm telling my kids now. What's the difference? We think, well, you know, they had the temple and they had the sacrifices and we have Christ in the cross. It's really not the point. There's no equality there. The cross is the mechanism that saves us. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was never the, never the mechanism that saves them. Never. They weren't called to trust in their sacrifices and they weren't called to think that their sacrifices really dealt with the problem of guilt. As a matter of fact, and we could keep reading in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, it was clear. Sacrifice couldn't atone for it. If sacrifice was what was needed, David says, I would bring them to you. But it's the sacrifice of a contrite heart. That's what you won't despise. Do you see that it's the same thing? What's the difference? Well, really, there's no difference at all. Well, how do they get their sins forgiven? Sacrifices? No. The sacrifices pointed symbolically to Christ. Did they understand all this with clarity any of that? No, they may not have. Matter of fact, I'm confident they didn't. But they figured that God would deal with this problem. They knew that the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. What's the point? As I often say, just to make it as simple as possible, they were saved on credit, if you will, and we're saved on the debit card. Do you see the difference? The payment has been made at the cross. The mechanism of the payment, I guess, I suppose, for a lot of people in the Old Testament, was an academic, nebulous thing. I don't know how God's going to do it. But I know the problem, I know what, who I'm dealing with, and I know that what God is calling me to do is repent and trust Him. Same gospel. Same gospel, saved by the same mechanism, the cross. So don't be a chronological snob. Be good if you weren't a snob at all in any way. 
That was a joke. It's not a joke. I'm serious, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Letter B, don't think that the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament. More on that in a minute. And don't think they were saved any differently than we were, just because the Holy Spirit relationship changed. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit and people in the Old Testament. Holy Spirit and people in the Old Testament. Let's get some background. Turn with me to Isaiah 63. I'm making you turn to a lot of places up front, but I start putting the verses on the screen for you just about the time your fingers get tired, so it'll be okay. Isaiah 63. What we're trying to do here is to figure out what is the relationship of the Holy Spirit with people in the Old Testament. We, we want to figure this out. We've got to look at the grammar. We've got to look at the way it's described. But we need to start with a little background from Isaiah 63 because one of the things that's described in terms of the Holy Spirit is not the individualistic connection or relationship with people that we might expect. So let's look at this. Isaiah 63. Let's start in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. Do you see these are our plural pronouns? I'll recount it, but I'm thinking of what he's done for us. The great goodness to the house of Israel, house, family, connection, biologically, that he has granted them according to his compassion. So he's been good to a group of people under the banner of Israel, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. A couple things here. When it comes to God's relationship to people in the Old Testament, what we see so often is God's connection with a nation, a group of people, descendants physically of Abraham. While there's a lot of mixed hearts within that nation, we see God speaking in corporate terms many times as it relates to the spirit, which we're going to see in this passage. God chose a nation, chose to set his love on a nation, chose to be compassionate toward a nation, chose to grant them this love. Then verse nine, just to think historically about their journey, if you will, it says in all their affliction, next verse, he was afflicted. Who was afflicted? God was. When they're afflicted, he was afflicted. There was compassion, sympathy, empathy, And underline this now, this is interesting, we're not in Christology, but I could take some time and make the case here. The angel of his presence saved them. Matter of fact, even if you go back to the calling of Moses at the burning bush, you think about the Lord talking to Moses. Do you remember when the Lord was talking to Moses at the burning bush? Well, the Bible doesn't say it was the Lord. It says it was the angel of the Lord but it was the Lord in first person, but it never identifies him as the Lord. Well, it says, I am. I understand that, but look at the context. The angel of the Lord, this representative of the Lord, if you will, the one who comes in some kind of first person speaking for the Lord is throughout the story of the Exodus presented to us as the angel Lord. In this case, the angel of his presence, who's looked to as the specific personage who saves them. No time to elaborate on that. But the angel of his presence here saves them in his love. And he has pity on them and redeems them. These are words now in the New Testament we do attach to the second person of the Godhead, the one who saves us, our Savior and our Redeemer. And he lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. So God not only picks a nation, but he redeems a nation in a very historic event, bringing them out of Egypt. And he always points back to that as this ultimate picture of you were mine and I saved you. You were mine and I redeemed you. You were mine and I brought you out of slavery. All those became the pictures and the template of what Christ comes speaking of doing for the individual. But these were things that were spoken of corporately. God loved a nation, which he often personifies and speaks of as an individual, but it's not an individual. It's the house of Israel. It's the people of Abraham. And he speaks of saving them, not individually, but corporately. Now, does he save individuals? We'll get into that, of course. 
But the picture initially of God dealing with his people, and we're going to get into it now regarding the Holy Spirit, is a corporate connection, a corporate relationship as a group. So let's think that through. Number one, write this down. Still in Isaiah 63. Don't close that text. The Holy Spirit, now the text is going to say, was in the midst of his nation. Just like we would say that the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is in the inside, in the midst, if you will, of the individual But in the Old Testament, we have to start with this understanding as we think about the Spirit's relationship to to God's people. This is how it's described. Look at verse 11. And he remembered, then he remembered the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Rhetorical question. Where is he who put, underline this now, in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Well, there's the phrase, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They didn't stumble. Now, the picture of the nation chosen by God, loved by God, redeemed by God, is now pictured as being indwelt by the spirit. Who's indwelt? The nation. God is like extending his authority and his power through the hand of Moses. But who's indwelling this nation? The Holy Spirit. See how that's, they wouldn't even think that way. I mean, some old school people think that way, I suppose, of America and in in their hazy views of the glory of America. But we think in terms of individual connection with the Spirit. Here it's presented as, here it's presented as national. Letter B. I skipped verse 10, but I want to go back to it now. Isaiah 63.10. These are words we will get into, and certainly you know in the New Testament. Look at how it's put in verse 10 regarding the Spirit's activity within a nation. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now, we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians that we're reading for our daily Bible reading right now. But here we see the nation grieving, rather, through their sin, the the Holy Spirit, who what dwells in them. Do you see the parallels here? I mean, this is more than just interesting. This is a picture of the way God's dealing with the people. Of course, he deals with them individually, but he's dealing with them as a nation. Which, by the way, sidebar for just a second. It's one of the reasons when people, this came up somewhere. Where was this? I think it was in our Compass 101 class. But we were talking about the backsliding theology. And and I know that's controversial for some people. But just study the Bible and take the modern day view of the backsliding theology, which is I can become a Christian, you know, as a kid, then I can backslide for 15 years, and then I can come back. And you can go to the Bible and you can find verses about backsliding. Go to where you see that theology taught. It's taught in the Old Testament as a nation that has been redeemed by God, back in 1445 BC, has had the spirit put in the midst of them, who grieves them, and not only grieves them, but defects and backslides and moves away from the Lord generation after generation, defying him sometimes for 400 plus years at times where he sees his child, the nation of Israel, who has the spirit indwelling them and then grieved and quenched, if you will, and then departing and then regaining. That picture is not individual, it's corporate. It's not someone's life in the decades of his 20s or 30s, and he's defecting in his 20s and returning in his 30s, but but centuries, decades, long periods of time with different people making up the composite of the people of Israel. So all I'm saying is when you think about the Old Testament and the way God speaks, you cannot build your theology with any precision on how God speaks of his dealings with the nation and immediately say, well, then everything applies to the individual, although there's plenty of parallels here. Bible likes to present the Spirit's relationship in the Old Testament to the saints as plural, the saints as a nation. Not always. 
but often. Letter C, and I'll put this one on the screen for you. Nehemiah chapter 9. Look at how this is put. Much like we might think about the illumination of the Holy Spirit in terms of a person. Here's another passage. It's far removed from that text we were just looking at. Nehemiah 9, verse 19 and 21. 19 through 21. You and your great mercies, God's great mercies, you didn't forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire night by night for them the way by which they should go. You, you led them. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Again, this is corporate identity, national identity. And you did not withhold your manna from their mouths. And you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet did not swell. The spirit of God in relation to the people of God, again viewed corporately as a, as a spirit who indwells them as a nation. And a spirit that can be grieved by their sin corporately which is obviously made up of individual sins, and then also the whole process of the Spirit of God teaching and instructing and illuminating them spoken of nationally. All right. When the Spirit is described in terms of individuals, it looks a lot different. Letter D. I want to start using words now that the Bible in the Old Testament uses. And there's a variety of them, and though it's tempting to just put them in nice, clean categories and begin to think them through differently, you might want to reserve some of your judgment on that until we get through the list. But let's start. Letter D. The Holy Spirit was, here's the key word in this text, upon, in Hebrew, all, upon, aleph lameth. That little preposition, much like the New Testament prepositions, communicates something unique and something profound. Let's think this through first in terms of prophets. Second Chronicles 15, 1 and 2. Here's our phrase. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Azariah was a prophet. And he went out to meet Asa, the king, and he said, Hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. And now he's going to speak for God as a speaking prophet. He wasn't a writing prophet like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but a speaking prophet. And the Bible says that when he prophesied, now I'm talking about an individual, the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, God is already looking at Israel as the Spirit is in their midst, the Spirit instructs them, the Spirit can be grieved corporately, but individually now, I have descriptions of the Spirit coming upon all, coming upon people, prophets. That, of course, is a domestic prophet. Might be worth jotting down a sub-point under, or at least a bullet point under number one. Of course, Azariah is a Jewish man speaking to King Asa in the Old Testament. But here's something to challenge your thinking. Numbers 24, the domestic prophets are certainly guided by the Spirit of God. But sometimes we see foreign prophets, and I don't mean Israelites that go to foreign countries. I'm talking about foreigners that are prophesying about Israel. And the classic example is Balaam that was hired by Balak to curse the people of Israel because Balak was afraid of Israel coming and routing his land. Notice this phrase. And Balaam lifted up his eyes. He was the prophet for hire. If you haven't read that story lately, Numbers 24, it's interesting reading. Balaam lifts up his eyes. He saw Israel camping by tribe by tribe. They're in their tents and in their groups. And the Spirit of God, here it is again, same Hebrew preposition, came upon him. And he took up his discourse and he said, and now he begins to prophesy, which of course he's trying to say because he's hired to say, cursed be Israel, but he can't say it. Now he's going to bless them. Matter of fact, he gives messianic prophecies regarding the coming of Christ in his prophecies. And the Bible says that all came because the Spirit of God came all, came upon him, and he began to speak. Corporately, Spirit of God dwelling in the midst of Israel, instructing Israel, which of course has to be instruction, I suppose, through individuals, but that's how it's described. 
able to grieve Israel. But when individuals now are going to relate to the Holy Spirit, it'll be people like prophets when the Spirit comes upon them. Next category, kings. Kings in the Old Testament. Here's one, 1 Samuel 10.10. If you know your Old Testament, you know who we're dealing with here. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. Who's the him in 1 Samuel 10, Sunday school grads? Saul, it's our first king. He met a group of prophets. Now, of course, we've already seen the prophets are ones who have the Spirit come upon them and they say things for God. Saul comes upon the prophets and the Spirit of God, interesting phrase here now, rushed or came quickly upon him. In other words, the countenance and the whole countenance of of Saul changes and he has the Spirit of God do some kind of, of, as it's described, some kind of, of coming over him and he now begins to prophesy among them. That's an interesting passage. There should be some dissertations written on this. It would be a fascinating trying to paint that picture in its totality. I preached on it years ago, but a lot of unanswered questions. Nevertheless, we're talking here about Saul in this passage, who ends up not being the greatest king, as you know, a compromised king, a king that's ultimately rejected. But when he, at the beginning of his reign, is set apart by the prophet, and then he ends up being with a a group of prophets, the Bible says the Spirit came upon him. Maybe this one will feel better than that one. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Samuel then later takes the horn of oil after we see that Saul's a a dismal failure and he anoints or pours the oil in the midst of his brother on top of of David. And the spirit of the Lord, same phrase, quickly came upon him, same preposition, on David. Look at this now, from that day forward. So this just wasn't a prophetic thing that happened where he begins to speak words from God to people. But now he has the spirit upon him, whatever that means, more on that later, comes upon him and it stays on him from that day forward. Now that's an insightful statement from Samuel, we suppose. The evidence of that we'll look at later. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So there's our second king. So we've got prophets, domestic and foreign. Not many examples of foreign, although you could speculate about people, uh, even foreign kings, I suppose, like uh, Melchizedek and others, even as I was reading through Daniel recently, even uh, Nebuchadnezzar at certain points in his history. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God active here in the lives of Saul and David. Judges. I know this is not in chronological order, but I think it's in logical order for us. Logical in that we think of prophets needing the Spirit of God to speak their words, God's words, and we need God, I suppose, over his his chosen nation on which the spirit is living in the midst of to have the man at the helm be someone whom, whom the spirit is especially relating to. But the judges, I mean, this is interesting. Judges chapter three, verse 10. This is Othniel, the first as Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. Now, if you haven't studied the book of Judges, this is not a guy in a black robe with a, you know, a gavel adjudicating Fender benders. This is a political leader who is also a military commander. So these people were deliverers. That's why I put them that way. They were military deliverers. And he went out to war and he had success. And the Bible says because he's this commander of the army, he has a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. Same preposition in Hebrew, spirit comes upon him. Doesn't have the qualifier that it rushed upon him or came upon him quickly, but certainly it came upon him at a point in time. Another one, I thought this one was even better, the colorful way in which it's uh, described. Judges 6.34, this is about Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord, now look, this is a different verb. It's not a preposition, but it uses a verb, clothed. It clothed Gideon. This is in the middle of the drama unfolding here as he's about to take the city, and he sounded the trumpet, clothed him. Same idea, though. What do clothes do? Well, we put them on our bodies. There's the picture, the preposition, of the Spirit being on the person. Prophets, kings, judges. 
Holy Spirit is upon. Let's look at another preposition in Hebrew, a description of people where the Holy Spirit is in them. Now, with such concerns in the upper room discourse about the change in prepositions from with you to in you, you might say, well, this is interesting the way these words seem to not be so crisp and, 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 and distinguished. I understand that frustration, as we'll summarize here in the end. Holy Spirit was in some individuals. Let's look at this passage here up on the screen. Genesis 41. Genesis 41, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants... Now, I understand this is coming through Pharaoh. It's recorded by Moses. But here's the conclusion of of the king. Can we find a man like this, speaking of Joseph, in whom is the Spirit of God? This now is a different Hebrew preposition. Just like in our language, it's not on you, but it's in you. The Spirit is described to be in Joseph because he has, uh, and that's number one, because he has a prophetic ability. Now, again, to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece of God, we looked at this last week, is to be able to say something revelatory, something that is covered, only God could know it, something that only God could comment on, and that revelatory work is the prophetic office, the prophetic work, and Joseph had the ability to be able to interpret dreams in that case. Here's another passage, Numbers chapter 27. So the Lord said to Moses, which we could spend time looking at the Spirit's relation to Moses, but look at this very specific statement here because we're dealing with the preposition in at this point. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Now, if you want to doubt Pharaoh talking about the Spirit being that involved in a person and being in him, certainly hear God talking directly to Moses about, about Joseph, I'm sorry, about Joshua. Clearly, this is an accurate statement. There's no guessing about this. And the Bible doesn't use the word upon or on. It uses the word in, a man in whom is the Spirit. And then he says, go lay your hand on him and broker the authority that you have. Make sure the people know that he has the authority that you had and the transition of power is going to take place. But the Spirit, according to God, is in, in Joshua. Now, in the context, what's important here, in the context of that passage in, in Numbers 27, you can look it up later, is that he's going to do prophetic work. He's going to speak for God just like Moses spoke for God. But if you know the story of Moses, even the authority that's transferred to Joshua from Moses, he's doing the work of a judge, not in the sense of our definition of judge, but the biblical definition of judge. He's going to deliver the people. Gideon goes out and fights a battle and delivers the people. Joshua's going to go fight the battle and deliver them from the Canaanites who are needing to be routed from the land. Daniel 4. At last, Daniel came in before. He who was Belteshazzar. Interesting that it's used here, but they called him that. Bel, by the way, is the, the god of uh, the Mesopotamians, the uh, Marduk, he's also called, the Babylonians. Uh, Belteshazzar means, uh, it's an, an invocation of Bel, the, the god of Marduk, to protect us. Hilarious, and, and I say hilarious in a bad sense, a tragic sense. He's being called by the god of the Babylonians. Oh, which he says, there it is, yeah. After the name of my god, Bel. And he's saying this about Daniel. And in whom is the spirit, now this is Nebuchadnezzar here talking, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. If you had your ESV open and you looked at the footnote, the way that that's put there in that text, that's uh, Aramaic at that point. It's one of the few places we switch from Hebrew to Aramaic in the Old Testament, Ezra and Daniel. And it's, it's the word you're more familiar with in Hebrew, Elohim. And it's translated here, the spirit of the gods. Whatever he meant by that, clearly it was, okay, I named him after my God, but this guy has, has the ability to do this prophetic work. That's the picture here of Daniel doing prophetic work in this passage. That is being an avenue of otherwise unknown information that God, revelatory, God uncovers, reveals, and he speaks. 
And so I told him the dream, because this guy has the spirit of the holy gods. You could translate it, as I probably your ESV has as an alternate translation, the spirit, capital S, of God. But this is a pagan speaking, so it's put this way, which may be right. I got one more from Daniel later on. I just thought the way this was put was, was almost humorous. It's unique. Jan- Daniel 6. This, then this is Daniel. He became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because, underline this, well, you can't. It's on the screen. An excellent spirit was in him. Now, I didn't give you all the quotes from Daniel as he's often associated as having the spirit of the gods or the spirit of God in him. But here's one way that it's described. He's got a, a in the Aramaic word, is an exceeding, uh, an unmatched, an unrivaled spirit in him, which in Nebuchadnezzar's mind in the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom, there was this repeated description of Daniel being one who has some revelatory ability. Now, these are statements about a spirit being in them, which I'm arguing, at least in Daniel's case, is God. Clearly, Joshua and Joseph, examples, usually related to prophetic. Joshua, I suppose, fulfilling a dual role as a deliverer or a judge. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but the Hebrew word used in other places regarding individuals is the word we translate filled, like a cup filled with liquid. Let me give you this passage. It may come as a surprise. I have called, this is Exodus 31, they're doing, they're, they're spelling out, God's spelling out all the details for the building of all the utensils in the tabernacle. I have called by name Belziel, the son of Eri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have, now here's the, here's the thing to note, filled him with the Spirit of God. This is God speaking, saying, I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. You're thinking, wow, does that mean every artisan is filled with the, with the Spirit of God? Uh, let's just be specific and contextual here historically. We can surmise on that later. But the artisans of the tabernacle are specifically described in the Old Testament as being filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit of God, which in this case manifests itself with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Interesting, is it not? Artisans of the tabernacle. Here's another one where the same verb is used. Micah 3.5. Micah speaking for himself in this case after reviewing in the first seven verses all the negative prophets that were speaking all the wrong things and just tickling ears. He says, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob, that's the nation, his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Now, I'm going to preach a scathing sermon, he says, and I'm filled, as a prophet now, I'm filled with the Spirit of of the Lord. But you see in this passage, he's also talking about power or authority, and I'm going to speak things that are just, and I'm going to describe things that that have power or, or authority or might in them. Interesting. You'd think you'd reserve the verb filled for something different than that. And yet again, we're back to the prophets having this special relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, this one's not in the Old Testament, but it'll be familiar to you because we looked at it last week. The Old Testament people are described in the New Testament, at least some of them, as being carried along by the Holy Spirit. If I'm asking the question, what is the Old Testament individual's relationship to the Holy Spirit? I can say, well, according to 2 Peter 1.21, it says those that were prophesying, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God, I'm sorry, men rather, spoke from God as they were, here's the phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the usage of that in the shipwreck chapter in the book of Acts. But these again are prophets. In the New Testament, describing Old Testament saints, in this case, specifically prophets who have a special relationship to the Holy Spirit. So we haven't really expanded on the target 
of the special individual relationship with the Holy Spirit. But we've certainly seen a lot of words used, haven't we? Filled, in, uh, upon, carried along. Now, let's try and tie some of this data together. First of all, I want to make the statement number four as we assess the data of the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament. I want to say, uh, we don't have enough data for any precise picture. In other words, if you really want to write a doctoral dissertation on the Spirit in the Old Testament, there's going to be some holes, and you'll have to only assume and speculate and surmise what the average little Jewish boy who follows Yahweh and puts his trust in his redemption and deals with his conscience and the conviction and, and repents of his... What's his relationship to the Holy Spirit? We don't have enough information to make any definitive statements. hard to write a book on Old Testament pneumatology as it relates to the individual. We get broad strokes for the nation, and we see that prophets and military leaders and kings have a special relationship to the Spirit, spoken of in a variety of words and prepositions and verbs, but I can't really give you a crisp picture. I can, based on the promise of the Old Testament and the promise of Christ, say whatever the relationship was for the rank-and-file person like you and me in the Old Testament, you know what? All I can say is it's certainly better now. Because when Jesus comes along and says he's with you and will be in you, and everyone from least to greatest is going to have the Spirit, that's a kind of change from the Old Testament that begins to give me a glimpse that maybe like the prophet or the king that has the Spirit indwelling them and upon them and filling them, now everybody has that relationship. There's some hints. We saw that in Joel chapter 2, quoted in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preached about from the least to the greatest, everyone. Not all without exception, not all flesh without exception in the first century, but all within the body of Christ now, as he's going to call it from that point on, all without distinction, every level, every kind of person, not just prophet and king. Let us see. This should be obvious by now, and I've made this emphasis, I've put this emphasis on the Holy Spirit's focus is clearly office-based. If I'm going to put some kind of description on the Holy Spirit's relationship to individuals, the most helpful descriptions I have are always based on someone's office, usually the prophet, sometimes the leader, the king, the military commander, the deliverer. Or I can say it's project-based. I don't think every blacksmith has the spirit of God in them. Everyone who can paint a picture is, is got a special relationship to the third person of the Trinity. I believe in common grace, but I think the artisans of the tabernacle seem to be the kind of person we could say has a special relationship for the project. What we said so far there, that whatever's going on in Old Testament is inferior to New Testament without pitching the whole family of God under the bus in the Old Testament, as, as Pink says, we have to say if this is office-based or project-based in our survey of the data, it helps us understand the transient descriptions of the Spirit in the Old Testament. And we didn't go through all of these, but just as we have examples of the Spirit coming upon people, we also have examples of the Spirit leaving people. And even as we see the Spirit coming upon the people of God corporately and symbolically in the temple or the tabernacle, we also have pictures of Ichabod. What's that Hebrew word mean? The glory departs. We see the picture of him leaving. The coming and going of the Spirit in the Old Testament. We can understand if the practice of the Spirit is office-based or the focus of the Spirit is office-based or project-based or corporate as it's described so often. Then when I read passages about the transient nature of the Spirit, I need not build my New Testament theology or my New Testament pneumatology on Old Testament descriptions of the Spirit's coming and going. Matter of fact, the New Testament is trying to make a big point of that. 
One classic verse I hear misquoted all the time, particularly by those who believe that the Spirit can come and go in your own life, or you can be a Christian one year and not a Christian the next year, it's verses like this, Psalm 51, 11, where David says, in contrition over his adultery with his neighbor, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we take that and read it through a New Testament lens, and we think, okay, God's going to kick me out of his family and take the Holy Spirit out of my life. I've heard that misquoted a million times. But if the Spirit's work is project-based on a few occasions and office-based, clearly, and the Bible says things like this, that when the anointing of the, of the oil upon the head of David as a symbolic act, external sign of him becoming the next king, the inauguration sign, right, the ceremony, if you will, and he now has the Spirit of God come upon him, And he is now authorized to do the work, not as a prophet in this case, although he does prophetic things in his writing in the Psalms, but as a king, when he sins with his neighbor as the king of Israel, he now is concerned that he's going to lose his job. That's the point. As a matter of fact, presence, what are you talking about? What did David spend all his time trying to do? Get that Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and to have a temple built for it, which God wouldn't allow him to do. But he said, put it here, set it up. We'll have your son build the, build the temple. The presence of God. Remember all the Psalms? And I didn't write them all down. I give you time to look through all those. He speaks about, man, I just want to be in, in, your, in, your, in your house. Just want to spend every... How lucky are the birds that get to go up there and, and hang out near the Ark of the Covenant? I just, I want to be in the presence there of the Lord. We sing those songs because they're poetic. But you understand when David's concerned about his sin, that's grievous, I get that. He's concerned he's going to lose his job and get kicked out of the palace. He's going to have to leave the place where the presence of God, adjacent to the the, the housing of this symbolic presence of God, where even as Ezekiel said, where the spirit comes and the spirit through sin descends or, uh, or retracts and leaves Ichabod, that idea of I've sinned, I please God, forgive me. Don't let me lose my job. Don't let me lose my position in this kingdom. That may sound base or selfish, but it's the concern of his heart in Psalm 50. This is not a statement about soteriology. It's really a statement about pneumatology and his role as a leader in the nation. And you can look at other transient descriptions of the comings and goings of the Spirit and not be led astray because the Spirit's relationship to individuals was different in the Old Testament. Therefore, I guess another way to say this, or at least to take it a step further, none of this that we're talking about redefines Old Testament election. And by that, I mean God's decision to choose people to be his children. If someone through the conviction of God, I'll just keep that in general statements instead of saying the conviction of the spirit. If someone through the conviction of God sees their sin for what it is, confesses it in their spirit, they're willing to confess it. And to have that sin forgiven because they believe God and they trust God and they repent of their sin. That relationship between God and that person who, as it's put elsewhere in the prophets, has a quote-unquote circumcised heart. It's not just that you're a descendant of Abraham. It's not just that you have the ceremonial signs. It's that you're truly a connected person to God whose sins are forgiven. You should be blessed because God is not counting sins against you. That is not something transient just because the Spirit's involvement upon and not upon kings and prophets is transient. It has nothing to do with the election, if you will, or the predestination, if you want to put it that way, of someone who's in the family of God. If an individual, some man in the Old Testament, is right with God because of confession and repentance and faith in God, that doesn't come and go. In other words, another way to ask the question is someone, can can they lose their, if you're someone who believes because of the New Testament work of the Holy Spirit, you are once a child of God, always a child of God. What about the Old Testament? A lot of people scratch their head. I don't know. 
Well, because the descriptions seem different. What we've explained so far should allow you to leave and say, listen, it has no effect on that at all. When God calls people to himself and individually forgives their sins, their sins are forgiven, they're a child of God, if you will, Old Testament or New Testament, that doesn't change just because of the descriptions, the transient descriptions of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that said, I thought I would end with a couple of things that may be helpful, motivating, encouraging, challenging, devotional, I don't know what. But because we can, as Pink said, maybe be a little bit uh, superior in our own thinking regarding the relationship we have with God, thinking they're so inferior and we build too many contrasts between Old and New Covenant. You can think because if I've said to you the Spirit of God, much like a prophet or a king, dwells in your life, maybe not with the function of being a king or a prophet, but you have the indwelling Holy Spirit as we're going to get into next time in detail, then you might think, well, then everything's peachy and there are no problems. But in reality, as we'll see in just a foretaste of of where we'll go later in the series, you need to know there's clearly problems that you can have with the Holy God, including the third person of the Spirit, just by your life, your lifestyle. Ephesians 4, 29 through 31, even the way you speak, the things that come out of your mouth, corrupting talk, as it's called here. That stuff shouldn't happen. You should be saying things that are edifying, that build people up. They fit the occasion. They give grace to people who hear it. And the context is, if you don't, there's a problem. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, notice the juxtaposition here of these phrases. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Should I pray Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? I don't need to pray that prayer. That should, though, not make me think I've got some kind of insurance policy that makes it always peachy with the Holy Spirit in my life. No, even the things that I say, you know, with the guys at the, at, at the golf course can put between me and God relational obstruction. It can disrupt my fellowship, even though I'm sealed to the day of redemption. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? You're, you're in a relationship that will never, it, it's like a pipe. The pipe connects the two of us. But the pipe can get clogged. I don't know. Every illustration is bad. That one's kind of gross, the more I think about it. But if the pipe is clogged, I got a problem. There's not a free-flowing relationship here. Sin can do that. Don't think that just because the Spirit of God is something permanent, no problem. No, he says, we don't want any of that. You may be sealed, but you can grieve. Things like corrupting talk, verse 29, or verse 31. How about bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander? You got to get done with all that. Get it away from you. Why? It clogs the pipe. It it mess it disrupts the relationship. It causes relational obstruction. So don't be snooty like so many people who go around thinking, well, if I got the Spirit and He promises to be with me forever, that's what the upper room discourse. But I'm okay, no problem. No, there can be big problems. Back to where we started in terms of the Spirit of God dealing corporately with a nation. Just like we were talking at the beginning of the, the night, talking about you know ministries as a whole, talking about organizations within the body of Christ, like at Calvary we were talking about. The idea here is that we should understand there can be problems with the Spirit of God, not only individually, but corporately. Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now we're talking to a group of Christians. These are the postcards to the seven churches. This is the church at Laodicea. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now I understand I can't make a a tight pneumatological statement on this or assertion because this is Christological. This is Christ speaking. But notice when we talk about the spirit of Christ dwelling within me, I mean, if the spirit of, I'm sorry, if the, if the Messiah himself is depicting himself as outside of his own church, having to knock on the door because of their lukewarm compromises, and he has to say, hey, if anyone would hear my voice, open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with him individually, but corporately, I'm on the outside of my own church. Then I think I can make the statement, letter H, 
there is a, and I, you know, sometimes I just try to say things in a way that you'll get the idea and it's not a smooth phrase, but here it comes. There can be a corporate pullback, a pullback from the group. When it talks about in the Old Testament, the people of God backsliding, I'm not talking about individuals. We're talking about the corporate entity of the people of God, Jacob, if you will, Israel, the house of Israel. If they can slide away and, and, and stop the pleasing of the Lord by their behavior and put the spirit of God in an Ichabod situation of backing away corporately from them, we can do the same. If in our church, our lifestyles or our attitudes and corporately begin to be something Maybe we run through the motions like in the Old Testament where God has to say to his people, away with the noise of your songs. I don't want to hear it anymore. Or in in Malachi 1, I wish someone would just shut the gates so I don't have to endlessly have to put up with your, your kindling fire on my altar. There can be that happening in our church today, in this church. Just because we have the Spirit and we're sealed until the day of redemption, I don't want you to think the Spirit of God could not show up on a Sunday. Do you see what I'm trying to say? We can be squandering the great privilege of the work of the Spirit in our church. That wasn't a happy note to end on, but it is one I hope that motivates us. And I think of the, I think of the, the chiding of the Apostle Paul to us in, uh, just to think of another parallel text here that makes this point. In Romans 11, he speaks of the Gentiles being grafted in to this, this olive tree. And he says to them, don't you get snooty about this. Don't you get prideful. Don't be conceited. He said, they got cut out because of sin. He can cut you out too. Now, is he talking about us individually losing our salvation? That's not the point of the passage. The point is you Gentiles looking down upon the Jewish root and treating them with contempt, which is what he gets into in the latter part of the book, particularly in chapter 14, with the fighting among the Gentiles and the Jews in the church. But what he's saying there is don't. He could easily take you guys out. And that's when he says, consider the kindness and severity of the Lord. You got to consider them both. Kindness, because he's grafted you in, but severity. You need to think corporately there could be an Ichabod going on. And in that sense, it isn't just a church like Laodicea. It's the whole movement of the church, the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles as it's put elsewhere in that passage, actually. All right. Let's be God. Sobering thoughts there at the end, only just to make sure that when we think about the Old Testament saints having an inferior relationship to the Holy Spirit and yet having the privileges and the joy and the blessedness of forgiven sin like we do. Lots of parallels, a lot more in common than most people assume, as Pink said. We still want to remember that our privileged position doesn't give us carte blanche to just sit back and think, hey, it's fine. Even if our church gets real worldly and you know we start living like everybody else and compromise and cut corners, yeah, the Spirit of God will be happy to hang out with us on Sundays, Thursday nights. It's not true. I mean, you could really be, as we all rush through the doorway to get our seats in church, sitting on the outside, wondering when anybody's ever going to acknowledge the importance of what it means to be in communion with you as we worship and learn the word. So God, make us more sensitive to that. Knowing we're sealed to the day of redemption, we certainly don't want to grieve the spirit of God. Much more to learn, but it's good for us, God, to go through this section of any good study of pneumatology to think about how the Old Testament saints dealt with you or how you dealt rather with them and make some appropriate comparisons. So thanks for giving us the opportunity tonight to do that. May it build not only on our knowledge base of the Old Testament, but may it also help us to interpret it right next time we study it, next time we open it up, next time we see a reference to the Spirit of God. Let us ask some real basic questions about context and audience and all the rest. 
Keep us from error, God. Things that we can be taught, that we can learn, that we can teach one another, admonish one another. Give us an increasing sense of clarity about who you are that we might rightly respond to you in every way, at every level, and in every aspect of our lives. Thanks for this crowd, God. Thanks for meeting us here tonight to speak to us. We trust that you have. Bear fruit through that knowledge now and the days and weeks to come, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.